Okay, before I start, I want to ask you to give me 10 seconds to do something on a scale of one to five. A scale of one to five. Five being you have the patience of Job. And one being I would run them down if I didn't think I would get arrested. <laughs> on a patience scale, what's your number? Don't tell me. Just think about it a minute. Be serious. Think about it. What's your patience scale? One to five. If five were the most patient man on earth and one were, ah, I'm going to run you over. It's a privilege to be with you guys, and I'm actually eager to talk about patience this morning. It's just one of those things that the Lord sort of dropped on me. I want to ask you one more time, we're not going to talk about this a lot, but if you'll just for uh, a little bit longer give me my social bubble until we get past my surgery and such. And also, many of you don't care how I dress. This is not how I want to dress on a Sunday, but I'm not able to wear a belt right now, so just pardon me for um, what I consider to be a little bit sloppier on my side, not that I dress sharply anyway. Let's start with this. It's Easter in, what, two weeks? And we'll have our Easter eggs, all the Easter fun and so forth. I think, do we have the helicopters coming? I should know that. So at uh, West Campus and East Campus, and we may even figure out how to do it online, you guys. Um, <laughs> you know, think about what you can do with an egg. It's a very fragile thing. It's very tender. But with an egg, you can celebrate spring. It is a symbol of life. Celebrate Easter. You know, with egg, you can have um, a great breakfast, omelet, fried eggs, however you want it. You can make bread with eggs. You can make cake with eggs. Uh, you may not know this, but mayonnaise is largely made out of eggs. And in the Middle Ages, a lot of what we would call oil painting was actually done with egg whites. So it was egg tempura. And um, even, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A can take an egg like this and, and turn it into a, a chicken sandwich. All it requires is just a little... <laughs> a little patience. And if you boil it, you can even drop it. Patience actually is one of the chief virtues of Scripture, but it takes a moment to think through why patience is so important. Why would God care if I get impatient in the traffic line in the morning commute to Nashville? Why would God care? Why does God care if I get irritable sitting in some professional office waiting my turn for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes? Or why, why does God care that I might get irritable? an hour and a half on hold talking to the internet company? Or why do these things matter to God? And the answer, I think, is because patience is the rubber where all virtues meet the road. That patience is the actual practice of all other virtues. I can say that I have peace like a river, but if I'm screaming at the cars in front of me when I'm driving down the highway trying to get into Nashville at about 7 o'clock, the truth is I don't have peace like a river. My impatience is the evidence that I'm not a peaceful person. I can say that I have joy that surpasses understanding. But if in my marriage my spouse drives me to utter irritation, the truth is I'm not a joyful person. In so many ways, patience is actually where the rubber of every virtue meets the road of all of realities. And that's why in the Bible, patience is both a quality of God and a virtue expected of each of us. So here's just one of the beautiful texts about how God is long-suffering. He's compassionate. He's gracious. Listen to this. He's slow to anger. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. It's just a, 
a statement about how long-suffering God is with us, how much patience He's shown towards each of us. And here's Peter's way of putting it. When the early church started to ask the question, well, when is Jesus coming back? Peter reminded them, well, it's not that Jesus is slow. God's not, God's not slow. He's patient. He wants you to have the time to repent so that nobody will perish. And then when we talk about our Christian virtues, the Bible has multiple things to say about it. Just two illustrations here from Colossians 3. We are to clothe ourselves and listen to the companions of patience, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. These all go with patience, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the traits, one of the fundamental characteristics of true genuine love is that it will be patient. I want to talk about patience. This is not a sermon that I planned around anything going on in my life, but it just seems to me now that every sermon I do or every book I look at brings to surface things in my life. So y'all will excuse me, I hope, if I can't avoid occasionally slipping off into some of the big news that's going on in my life. And this one just seems to be designed by the Lord to address me where I am right now. I want to do this by looking at James, the fifth chapter. So James is the brother of Jesus. This may have been the first New Testament book written chronologically. We don't really know that, but it appears to be a pretty early book. I'm going to have it on the screen, but online and in person, I really would love to see you just open up a Bible, get used to bringing a Bible, have it in your lap and look at it yourself and measure the things I say about what uh, is actually written in the Word of God. So James, the fifth chapter, James deals with the, the virtue of patience. We'll read it and then I'm just going to show you how it's a multidirectional set of ethics that actually bring all the joy that you want God to give you. So we start at verse 7, James the fifth chapter. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy." So even in this text, James uses five different, excuse me, three different Greek words that we might translate patience. Now, we're not going to go into all of that, and some of you may not have known this, but the book of James was originally written in the Greek language. But what it does demonstrate is that the word patience is a very rich term, can mean a lot of different things. The word that uh, uh, James most frequently uses in this text Again, nobody cares about Greek. I'm not trying to get you to care about it, but it's actually kind of an interesting term. He says that we are to practice macrothumane. These are actually a combination of two words that you would recognize even in English. So when you say micro, you mean something small. When you say macro, you mean something big. And our word enthusiasm comes from this word thumane. So what literally James is saying is, let it be a big time in your life before you get worked up that you shouldn't get worked up easily. Don't become unsettled quickly. Don't let little micro things mess you up. If I were looking for sort of my own biblical definition, it would be something like this. Patience is the strength to wait, endure, and even suffer 
for a greater good. And I want to say about patience that we actually need to be honest. Patience functions both as a thermometer and also as a thermostat. A thermometer doesn't control the environment. It just tells you what's going on around you. So a thermometer can tell you it's 70 degrees in this room right now, but it, was, it won't change that. In that way, patience tells us what's actually in your heart. That's really an important thing that we need to say. If I become super angry with somebody for a very small cause, then I can tell you love is not really that important in my heart. It's a thermometer. It actually reveals that to you. If I cuss and get angry at people, uh, pull out in front of me and I personalize it and I make it about them, then actually I can tell you I'm, I'm just not a real tolerant person. That patience really is a thermometer. It tells you what's in your heart. The lack of patience also tells you what's in your heart. But here's the remarkable thing. Patience is also a thermostat. That is, if you practice patience, people around you will also practice patience. If you practice patience in loving uh, uh, environments, the people around you will start loving. If you practice patience in the form of kindness, people around you will start being kind. I have to say, um, the, the last few weeks, so I've always been grateful for North Boulder. The last few weeks, one of the biggest feelings I've had, emotions I've had, is just such a profound gratitude for a lot of things, but one of them is North Boulevard. I've whispered this to Julie and maybe a few others. One of the things I miss is um, some of the elders of old at North Boulevard. Julie and I came in on September the 20th of 1992, 30 years ago. We went and had a five-year really good ministry in Overland Park, but we've, we've known this church for 30 years. And where I am right now, I would just love to sit down with some of the elders of old and say, tell me what I need to be feeling. T tell me, talk to me about what's going on in my life. And the reason I have those feelings is because I look at them as oak trees of patience. Men and women who could not have been blown down by anything. And in that sense, they were not just thermometers that told us the temperature of the room. They were thermostats. They set the environment of this congregation. Many still do today. But our patience does the same for others. A lack of impatience in your house, well, it'll become the DNA of your children. If you're a patient father or a patient mother then your children won't even recognize impatience because they'll simply have lived a life of patience. So let's go back to our text, and I want you to see that patience in this text is a multidimensional virtue. Uh, it's going to point three directions, and I think I can get through it pretty quickly. We start here with the first two verses of our text, verses 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. I want you to see that James puts patience in the context of what God is doing. It's in the context of the second coming. Don't forget that. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. These are the typical rains of Israel. It rains once in the autumn, it rains once in the spring. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So the first direction of patience in this text is patience towards God. And if patience is where the rubber of your virtue meets the road of reality, what's being said here is be patient on the Lord as evidence that you trust Him. That's where the rubber meets the road. If you trust God 
When difficult moments arrive, when surprises are announced to you, when you find yourself in, in a despairing position, if you're patient with God, it will be the thermometer that says you trust Him. Now, I've thought a lot about this lately, as you might imagine, for the last three and a half weeks or so. And um, I'll speak a little bit from my experience, if you will. The first thing I think that would help me move from a two to a three on the patient scale or a three to a four or maybe a one to a 1.1 is to remember to measure everything against eternity. Remember, the Lord's coming is near and so much of what seems to matter now, it really will cease to matter for eternity when Jesus shows up. Tim Keller is the founding pastor and um, lead pastor for years of the Redeemer Church in uh, Manhattan, New York. He's one of America's best pastors. He's a brilliant man, great speaker, brilliant author. About two years ago, Keller was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. His diagnosis is not, still not good. He wrote an article about how difficult it was for him to take all the stuff he had been sharing with his church when they found themselves in this position and try to believe it himself. I want to paraphrase a few things that he said because they're really helpful. One thing he said is that he instantly realized when he got home from his diagnosis that he, he kind of he loved this world a little too much. That he liked his job, he loved writing, he liked seeing those books get published. They had some vacation spots and he loved those vacation spots. And he said, as much as I have been telling the church, do not love the world or the things of this world, I realize I love this world. And he said one thing that uh, his cancer had done was to strip him of some of the loves that really don't matter in his life. I can tell you, I've had the same experience. Instantly, about three and a half weeks ago, I quit loving a whole lot of stuff that had mattered to me a whole lot before that. And I began to say, okay, what matters in eternity? And by the way, my prognosis is good. That's what I'm not suggesting. I, may, we, I trust I have years and years to go. But what really matters? Patience is learning to say, this world's beautiful, by the way. I hope you do love your vacation place. I hope you love your job. I love my job. I hope you like your new car. We're not against those things. This is a beautiful world that God gave us. But we are constantly reminded that at the end of the day, here's Jesus' words, at the end of the day, if you got everything but lost your soul, you have nothing. Or in Peter's language, and this is sort of what I think um, uh, the pastor was talking about. At the end of the day, if we can't remember that we really don't belong here, we're just pilgrims passing through then it's going to make it really difficult for us to be patient because we want to be in control of our stuff and we want our control now. Let me say also this, and I can move more quickly here. Trusting God means that I believe that everything God does will be worked together for my good. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. You know, if you're diagnosed with a heart disease or some real debilitating disease, that's not good. It, by no standard can you say that's good. That's not how we were designed to live. I want to say, sometimes we very compassionately say to one another, and I, if you've ever said this, I'm not at all criticizing what you said. I'm with you on it because I know what you mean. But sometimes we say, 
you know, death is natural. Or we say to someone who's lying in a casket, they look so natural. I just want you to know, I never had that feeling. They never looked natural to me. You know why? Because we weren't made to die. We were made to live. And we weren't made to get sick. We weren't made to suffer. We were made to thrive. That's how God designed us. And so anything other than that is unnatural. It's just that we broke this great creation through our sin. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve. I threw garbage into the water from which we must all drink myself. That we're all partly responsible. If that being the case, it's good to use the blessings God gives us. Use them. But it's not good to fall in love with them. Instead, keep our eyes fixed on the Jesus who is still to come. And let me just say one more thing. Gain weight. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about that one, but I'm going to move on. You're going to stop me? You're not even going to stop me, are you? You know, when they removed my kidney, they told me that their goal is to remove all the fat around the kidney. And um, I told the doctor, I said, well, you've hit a gold mine with me. Uh, you, you're going to have a lot of fat to remove around that thing. Gain weight. Here's what I mean by that. You know how the last part of Isaiah 40 ends? Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Those who wait on the Lord. The hardest thing for any of us to do is to wait, I think. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That we actually learn something in patience when we wait on the Lord. And waiting for a Christian is not a passive affair, it's an active affair. In waiting, we pray, we fast, and we worship. Those of you who are unable to be with us today, we have some of you online, you're traveling. We bless you. We're glad you're on the online campus. Some of you, you're not ready to come. No worries. Stay online as long as you think you should. Some of you want to be with the rest of us and you can't. I dread that day because I know walking in to the beautiful worship music of a house full of disciples of Jesus is the best therapy I'm going to get all week. And that's waiting, but it's not passive waiting. That's active waiting. All right, we've got to keep moving. The second direction of patience in this text is towards one another. So the first was, I learned to wait on the Lord. Patience towards God. The second is patience towards one another. Here's how James puts it. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, if patience towards God is applied trust, then patience toward others is applied forbearance. That is, it's a willingness to put up with one another's differences. Now, I want to say before we go further, because the definition of the word love and tolerance in the U.S. is now a corrupted definition, that we really don't want to tolerate sin. You're not doing anybody any favor by tolerating sin. You're doing them a disservice. Matter of fact, it's a very unloving thing for you to know that someone is living in sin and you to do nothing about it. That's, that's about as unloving as you're ever going to get. But so many of the issues that we have between one another are not really sins, they're just differences. We all process the world differently. We have different personality types. 
We just see the world differently. And in that environment, one of the great things we can do for one another is practice some humility, practice some gentility, make sure that we're just patient with one another in love. I'm going to give you four quickies on this one. The first one is don't personalize everything that happens. If you want to practice patience for others, remind yourself the world is not conspiring against you. If you think the world is conspiring against you, call Nathan Jernigan at North Boulevard. That's a joke. He's a counselor, and evidently, y'all have lost your sense of humor somewhere down the way. <laughs> when you see three or four people in the hallway talking, I promise you they're not talking about you. If you think your name is ever mentioned in an elders meeting, I can almost guarantee you the only time your name will ever come up is when they're praying for you, and they'll pray for you by name. If someone pulls out in front of you on the interstate, it's probably not personal. For all you know, they're in a huge hurry. They have no judge of distance. I don't know what it is. Maybe they're crushed with some terrible news. Don't personalize everything. Sometimes stuff just happens, and a patient person is able to say, okay, that's life. We roll with it. And then there's this one. Use your differences for good instead of fighting over them. So I do have my lovely wife's permission to share this with you. We have a, our women's group does a living colors, which is four different personality types represented by different colors. And uh, I'm a green. Those of you who know about the colors, that makes sense to you. Greens, uh, in fact, I don't think there's anything in me except green. Greens tend to be introverted. You know, we, uh, I'm not very good at math, but if, if I were, it'd be a nice green color because we like math, cubicles, closed rooms where we can focus on little tiny obsessive, little logical, reasonable things, and then we don't want to be bothered. If we're asked questions, we do a mathematical answer. My wife is blue. She's completely blue. Now, let's just put it this way. Blues have a very different logic than greens, um, if, if, if we can call it that. And uh, <laughs> so we're a green. Well, if you say to a green, what's two plus two? A green says four, but I want to double check that. And we'll get a calculator out, run it a couple of times, get back, may even give a, a, a maybe even call an accountant and say, is this right? If you ask a blue what is two and two, their first thought is going to be, what will make you happy? And if they think the number six will make you happy, that's going to be their answer. They're going to say, well, obviously it's a six. And if you say, no, it's not a six, they're going to be fishing what makes you happy? Because a blue's primary concern is making sure that everyone around them feels good. It's a real strong feeling thing. And by the way, it's a really odd thing that God would bring a green and a blue together and watch them try to process the world on a daily basis. And she would admit she's sitting right here. By the way, she's wearing all blue, which I don't even think is a coincidence um, today, divine providence or something. We've spent a lot of time trying to sort this out. So, um, you know, if I want to know where my white shirt is, I say, have you seen my white shirt? Julie's answer is going to be whatever she thinks I want to hear. She may have given the shirt away, but she'll find some answer that makes me happy. On the other hand, if she had something, someone yell at her, a client yell at her at work or something, she, I come home, she says, will you sit and hold my hand? You know how I'm going to respond. Well, what went wrong? She's going to tell me, and I say, well, just give me the number. I'll call them. We'll solve it. And that, that's not what she wants. She don't want me to solve it. She wants me to love her. Okay, so how do we deal with this? Well, instead of arguing over the different ways that we process the world, we learn to appreciate that I'll take care of this part. 
and you take care of that part. And it makes a whole person out of us. And I do want to tell you something. If you ever get diagnosed with stage four renal cancer, you better hope you're married to a blue because they know how to love you. Oh my goodness, they're a gold mine when you find somebody and you're sick. So if I'd been married to me, whoo. <laughs> I do love you. Use your differences for good. Let the wholeness of what it means to be some, with someone else bloom. I'm going to move through these. I'm going to run out of time if I'm not careful here. I'll just say this. When you have a difference with somebody, try to understand what is the feeling behind it. Usually our differences aren't about what we're discussing. Almost all of our differences boil down to something much more fundamental. We feel like we're being disrespected. Or we feel lonely. Or we're afraid of losing something. Or change is very difficult for us. If you can get to someone's feeling, whatever's behind the situation, you can generally de-escalate it. In fact, you can love it. Even if you disagree over it, you can love the feeling. And by loving the feeling, oftentimes the specific issue goes away. And what, one last thing. Build a system that avoids trigger points. So if one of you is really good with the checkbook and the other one... Ha uh, by the way, by saying checkbook, I realized I lost the entire <laughs> wing of the building over here. <laughs> For those of you online in the nursing home, if you're really good with a checkbook, <laughs> if one of you is really good at keeping records and so forth, and the other one pays, has never noticed that there's such a thing as a checkbook, they just know to pull out checks, here's a real good solution. Rather than fighting over it every single month, say, hey, here's $500 cash at the beginning of the month, do whatever you want to do with it, and just don't touch the checkbook, and everybody's happy. That is, honestly, you really can avoid a lot of trigger points if you'll just think it through and come up with some sort of system that allows everybody to win. Okay, one last direction of our, um, of our scale of patience. Remember, I'm, I'm really wanting you to go up one point, just one, even a half. If you're a two, I want to get you to a three. Here's the last one, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, that'll be our last one. Take uh, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. He mentions Job. Most of you are familiar with the story. Some of you are not. So Job is Old Testament character. Satan dared God. He said, I think I can make Job curse you by taking away all of his blessings. God said, don't kill him. And Satan took away all his blessings. And Job complained bitterly to God for about 40 chapters, but he never cursed God. And at the end of the book, God not, does not just restore his blessings, he doubles and triples his blessings. And so this is what James is saying. You've heard about Job's perseverance. He endured. And you saw what the Lord finally brought about. And he reminds us that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So patience towards our sufferings would be applied endurance. That is learning that though suffering was never intended for humans, it came as a consequence of sin. I don't mean you suffer because you sin. I mean we all sin and broke the world and now all of us suffer. Learning to say, you know, even in spite of that, God can use my suffering to purify me. This, by the way, is uh, another thing that um, Keller brought up in his article is 
again, how so, so many things that were really important to him ceased to be important almost instantly. In a lot of ways, I think this is um, it's one of the greatest gifts of suffering. I, I want to say this. Uh, my emotions are all over the place. But I have to say, my biggest emotion, um, my biggest emotion right now, and it's, it's with me every single day, is profound gratitude. I've never been more thankful in my whole life. I'm thankful that God said, hey, get your house in order. I'm going to give you some time. And by the way, again, I, I think I have years to go, but even if I don't, God said, get your house in order. That's such a, that's such a gracious thing for a God to do. I'm gracious, I'm grateful that I had 61 years of rich life. I'm grateful for my family. I am so grateful for North Boulevard. It's, it's my life. I'm just filled with gratitude and I realize, okay, if, if hardship is what I have to go through to become the man God wants me to be, I still don't want to do it. And I admit the flesh is weak. But I think it's going to make me a better man. That it really does purify us. You know, we all believe in the mortality of humanity. I believe in your mortality, but when I finally realized I'm mortal, it was a lot harder to accept. But it also instantly began to purify me of some things. James says it this way, or Peter does that is. He speaks to these Christians who are already being persecuted. He said, yeah, you're going to have to suffer right now. But your suffering proves the genuineness of your faith, not to God. God doesn't need it proven. I need it proven. I needed to know these things were real. And he says, your faith is like gold. And when gold passes through a fire on the other end, it's a lot purer. And so when we face our sufferings, we want to face them with patience because patience is where the rubber of my confidence that God is in charge meets the road of my sufferings. And then this, this will be my last one. Tell yourself the right story. You know, all the demons of hell will come after you when you're struggling. And they are, the only thing demons are good at is lying. And they're, they're a lot smarter than we are. And they're really good at lying. And they will tell you every conceivable lie when you're suffering. You deserve it. You are a fraud. You've never been loved. This is going to end in a disaster. They'll tell you every lie in the world. And I need you to know you have the gospel of Jesus Christ on your side. And that's the story you need to be listening to. You have a gracious and merciful God on your side. Keller says this. He says when, I'm paraphrasing, when he got his diagnosis, he said, I still believed everything I had ever preached, but my heart was having a hard time believing it. My head got it. I believe there's a resurrection of the dead, but my heart, like my heart says, are you sure? Really? Is, are you sure this is all real? You know what I've done to speak to my heart? I'm just going to share this with you. I've done two things. One of them, I've gone back to the old hymns we sang as a child. I'm not making a case for what kind of music to listen to. And I've sung those to my heart. LaDonna Brown, some of the songs you taught me. I sing into my heart. By the way, we, uh, three and a half weeks or so ago that we were diagnosed, and e every day since I've been to some doctor or something, they always ask, you, ask me the question, you know, is your chest hurting? And I say, well, it wasn't until you told me I had cancer, and now it hurts every day. Until I sing. I'm not making it up. 
When I start singing to my heart, my chest stops hurting, which is how I know it's in my head. I sing a song, oh my goodness, near my God to thee. And my heart says, yeah, this is true. You can depend on this. And you know the second thing I do? One of you sent me an email and reminded me that some years ago I had taught you a prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer. It's an old Orthodox prayer that's been used for centuries. It goes back to the Desert Fathers. It's a 12-word prayer. It can be used like a mantra or a chant. I'll just tell you what it is. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And through those prayers, if I just repeat those, the heart starts to say, yeah, 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 amen. This is going to end well no matter how it ends because I know who's in charge. Guys, I mention all this. I want to make sure you know I don't think I'm special. I'm, no, I'm not special. Many of you have gone through a lot rougher than I'm going through. You just have to forgive me. This is what's on my mind right now. I feel insincere if I don't talk about it, but I won't talk about it forever. Many of you deserve more attention than I'm getting. And you deserve a much bigger applause than I'm ever going to get. But it is real. You know, our relationship with God is real. Every day we have to live with one another. It's real. And we're all going to hear bad news one day. It's real. It really happens. And patience is when all those virtues that we said we believe actually meet the road. So what I hope happens as you walk out this door, or as you turn us off, is that you've moved from a one to a two, or a three to a four, and you won't forget what a five can actually feel like. Let's stand up and we'll celebrate together. Appreciate you guys.